Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 15 through 21. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had now rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. The Gospel of our Lord. And please be seated. The sections of the Gospel of John are exceedingly long. There is a uh, a record in the records of the classes of New Amsterdam from back when the uh, state of New York was a colony of, of the Netherlands. The reform ministers were required for the, for the sake of the elderly and the infirm to keep their sermons to no more than two hours long. Uh, if you have two hours to preach, you could probably do all of John chapter 6, but uh, we're not used to that, and so uh, I've been breaking up the narratives uh, in their logical chunks. We have just seen the feeding of the 5,000, and our text begins with therefore, so it jumps off of what is happening with the feeding of the 5,000. The great miracle... It is one of the very few miracles that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Uh, There really are very few others. Uh, The resurrection is one other, but honestly, this is kind of the miracle that gets mentioned in all of them. And it's certainly seen as a very positive thing. But as our text begins, uh, there becomes a note of disharmony We read that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. That is what they wanted to do, and our text begins with that. Everything that happens is kind of built off of that. Uh, What do we make of that? Well, it requires a series of questions. The first one is, What is it that people actually want from a king? Kings need, to some degree, the will of the people to be governed. Uh, These people desire a king. So what is it that they really want? Well, when you start thinking about why people want kings... A couple of very pragmatic reasons jump to mind. They want security from their enemies. This is a dangerous world. Uh, We have enemies of various types, some of them human, some of them not. Uh, We want somebody to make us safe and secure. 
And a king promises he'll do that. He will be the sword and the armor that will stand between you and your enemies. People want a king because they want freedom from caprice. This is a world where turn around twice and in a New York minute, something bad can happen to you. You don't need an enemy for it to happen. Uh, It can be a sickness or an accident or a fire or poison in the water. It can be an earthquake. Men turn to kings for protection from this sort of thing as well. The king will be there to look after me and and make sure that uh, I don't sink into the deluge of this world. Or, uh, quite frankly, kings certainly promise to protect us from want. If you listen to the rhetoric of kings, they will assure you that prosperity is just around the corner if you will allow them to rule, and we believe them, basically. We turn to kings and we say, by your wisdom and rule, by the might of your arm, uh, rule in such a way that prosperous days will be around the corner. We will grow in wealth and comfort. To be honest... We want more than just security from these things. We actually want victory over them. We want to defeat our enemies, not just stay uh, at arm's length from them. We want somebody to lead us in battle or maybe even do our battling for us. We want to vanquish those we consider foes. We want uh, victory over nature. We want someone to rule in such a way that we can, God-like, put our stamp on nature and make the world our own, uh, we want rampant prosperity. And we believe that a king can give it to us. There is no question that that was in the mind of those whom our Lord perceived wanted to come and by force make him king. The text reads in such a way that our Lord perceived it without necessarily having it told to him. It, this is a, uh, a testimony of our Lord's divine insight into the human heart. He knew what was in their heart, and without doubt, these were the things pushing them. They had enemies. They had a sense of want. They had a sense of caprice. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, looked like he could make an excellent king. He had just fed them. They were 5,000 men. He had fed them with just a few loaves of bread and two fish. Contrary to the liberal take on the feeding of the 5,000, it was an absolute miracle, and they had seen it happen. And so they said to themselves, who could be a better king and do all those things that we want a king to do Who could be a better king than Jesus of Nazareth? Would Jesus of Nazareth have made them a good king as they envisioned a king? Truth is, the answer is yes. They were looking for someone to do all those things, and he had just demonstrated his power over scarcity and want. He will, at the end of our text, have done the same sort of thing with nature and danger. 
Our Lord is clearly, clearly a wonderful candidate to be a king. The crowd's not wrong. They looked at him and with hungry eyes said, we will put him on the throne in Jerusalem and he will be for us the king that we have always wanted and we've been waiting for. Let's make him king. He would be excellent. And he would. But does Jesus of Nazareth want to be king at this moment? I mean, he really does have all the credentials. There is no problem at all with him sitting on the throne of Judea. Uh, He could bring their every desire from government. He could do that. There is no problem with him doing that. Does Jesus of Nazareth want to do this? The answer is obviously not. He uh, moves away from the crowd, specifically because they want this, He clearly does not want to be the kind of king that the crowd wanted. Was their desires bad? Were their desires illogical or irrational? Could you sympathize with their desires? I think if we're honest, the answer would be yes. Don't you want security from enemies? I mean, let's be honest. Don't you want that? Don't you want security from caprice? Security from want? Honestly, I would be hard-pressed to think that any of us would, in all honesty, say, no, we don't want those things. And so we can totally sympathize with this rabble Uh, we can see in their eyes what they see, and Christ obviously doesn't want to be the king they want him to be. I ask the question, is it bad for them to want this? And the answer is yes, actually. When did they lose their protection from enemies? When did they lose their protection from caprice? When did they lose prosperity? If you had asked the crowd that day, when did this trouble start, you might have gotten different answers depending upon how deep of a thinker you were talking to. The average person might say, we lost all of that when the Romans meddled in the politics of the Greek successor states and they effectively conquered us by politics, when they became our masters, when we became their political subjects, we lost all those things. But Jesus of Nazareth can give it back to us. Another, more realistically grounded member of the crowd might say, we lost this when the Gentiles overran the promised land. God promised us a land of milk and honey where we could worship the Lord as he commanded, and he had given us those things. But hundreds of years ago, well before the Romans, uh, the Babylonians came in here and tore up Jack. We read in the Psalms, the Gentiles have plundered your inheritance, they have 
they have uh, entered into the sanctuary, they've destroyed your temple, that's when we lost our protection from our enemies. That's when we lost protection from Caprice. That's when we lost our prosperity. It was back when the Gentiles broke in. Another well-educated member of the crowd might say, well, I don't know. If you read the historical books, there was a lot of time before those Babylonians came in here where we were suffering from our enemies, suffering from what appeared to be caprice, lacking prosperity. There were a number of kingly reigns where that didn't seem to be the case. So maybe we can walk back a thousand years. But we've certainly lost it, and we wanted it. And this Jesus of Nazareth has the power to give it to us, so let's make him the king. Let's take him by force and make him king. Would any of those answers be correct? When did they really lose those things? If you know the scripture... The answer is, they lost those things one day in a garden. When the serpent seduced Eve, and when Eve said, here, eat this, and Adam said, okay, and did that, it was at that moment that all mankind lost protection from their enemies. When they lost protection from Caprice, it was at that moment prosperity, which had been theirs. We talk about things being Edenic when we picture something perfect and without uh, any lack. Uh, Eden is where they lost those things. Um, Who did they lose them to? You might say they lost them to the devil and his agent, the serpent. You wouldn't actually be correct. The serpent did the seducing, the serpent wormed his way into the garden without doubt, but who cursed the earth? Was it Satan and the devil? Not if you know the scripture. At the last third of Genesis chapter 3, who is saying things like, The earth is now cursed because of you, and it will grow thorns and briars. You used to work and enjoy prosperity and have no problem in your work, but now the world will literally fight back against your efforts. Uh, From dust you came, and now to dust you will go. You'll die. I will give uh, pain to you in your childbirth and... Uh, I will give you a messed up sociological situation so that the sexes will be at war and ultimately everything will uh, go into decay. Who, Who said that? Who did that? It was the creator. It was God himself. Uh, what does the word of God say when it summarizes this world, everything about this world. Well, there's a couple of places you can go, but what jumps to my mind is Ecclesiastes 1, 14 and 15. One of the greatest kings the world ever knew was looking about the world, 
one of the richest and most prosperous kings, and he summed up the estate of this cursed world with these words. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. That sounds pretty absolute. What is lacking in this existence, you can't even count it. Is it twisted and broken? You can't undo it. It is a cursed world. What king is going to come in and help you with that? Has there been any king, any ruler, any government official of any stripe from any nation or any party or any philosophy that has ever changed that situation? One only needs to delve into the history of Western Europe or into the history of China and find a a huge history of philosophical thought about what kind of king would deliver us from that. Aristotle spent half his life trying to find an honest man. Now his word honest in the Greek is more than just he tells the truth. It's kind of a Greek term that summarizes everything that's kind of good. So an honest man would want the right things. He would view the world rightly. He would have the right desires. Uh, He would go into politics and want to become a king totally free of any self-interest. Aristotle said, we got to find somebody like that. Let's go find an honest man. And he spent the entire rest of his life looking for one and never found one. The Chinese spent whole generations looking for someone who would uh, mirror the, the order and harmony that must exist somewhere in the heavens. They spent generations looking for rulers who would honor Shang-Ti, which was their term for the one God. Uh, surely we can find somebody like that. Surely out there is someone who can untwist the world, who can count up what is lacking and supply it, were thousands of years past those people. And they did not find such a king. But understand, the crowd is not wrong. Jesus of Nazareth could have been that man. He had the mind of God, being the second person of the Trinity. He fed them with loaves and fish. He would walk upon the water just a few hours from now. He would walk upon the water in a squall of a storm that would not affect him at all. Um, Everything they wanted in their dream of a great king, he could be that. He chooses not to. He specifically walks away from that. What does the Word of God say about we, his people? We have seen Solomon sum up the world, but 
Is there any sort of summation for what the life of a believer would be like? Again, I could turn to many places, but what jumps to my mind is Acts chapter 14, verse 21 through 23. There we see Paul preaching to the the beginning churches, to to the, the burgeoning, visible kingdom of Christ, and we read this. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's a summary of Paul's preaching as he is moving his way back from one of his journeys, and it's really very positive. Uh, God's kingdom is growing, and the uh, apostles are strengthening the believers in their faith. They are talking about the goodness of God, and in fact, the last words there are, we commend you to the Lord, and the term Lord is nobility. It's a term for king. Um, We commend you to the Lord. He will watch over you. He will care for you, but right in the middle of it, there is not one hint of a whisper, of a rumor, of a thought that Paul says, now that you belong to the Lord, the Lord loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as you consider it to be. Rather, the apostle Paul looks at us and sums up the Christian life in the world and says, we must through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The crowd that day, wanting to come and make Jesus king, as they understood kingship, probably would not have grooved upon what the Apostle Paul was telling the churches. They probably would not want to hear, you must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. They're looking for a king, and a king to solve their problems, and they believe that can happen. And they are envisioning a golden age where the king will rule over them and get rid of tribulations. And Jesus of Nazareth could do that. It is totally, totally possible for Jesus to fulfill their desires, and he doesn't do it. And it is his spirit, speaking through the apostle, that says, we, his people, must go through tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. It is clear our Lord doesn't want it. It is shocking what he does when it comes up. What does the Lord do when he perceives they want to come and make him king? He leaves them. They have come looking for him. They are, in a way, putting their hope in him. But our Lord takes his very presence from them. He goes up on a mountain alone specifically to get away from them. Uh, 
Now, in other Gospels, we're told he has retreated to spend time in prayer, and certainly he has done that, but he is specifically leaving people who want this golden age kingdom under him. He walks away from them. When the Lord walks away from you, it is not a good thing. The great blessing of a mortal life is to walk with Christ, to be with him. In the orbit of Christ is all good things, and he leaves. Who are these people, though, who want a golden age from a king? Well, in our text today, we have not seen them laid bare, but we're going to. Further up in this story, they're going to pursue Christ, they're going to find him again, and they're going to basically ask, would you feed us again? And in verse 60 to 66, we're going to read this exchange between them and Christ, And as we do, we're going to see who these people actually are. Therefore, when many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Now, the saying we'll get into Lord's days from now, but notice right now they are disciples. They are visibly disciples. In the church, they have dedicated their lives to following Christ. These are truly religious people. They can be called disciples. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who don't believe. What is belief? Well, biblically, it is an absolute trust and dependence upon God, when it's in that context anyway. uh, You believe in God, you trust in him, you rely upon him, he becomes your only hope. Uh, These are disciples of Christ. The term disciple means that they have dedicated their lives to following him. Uh, They're following him around the country. They they will identify to people and say, I am a follower of Jesus the Nazarene. That's really what's moving me right now. Uh, If you really want to know what a disciple was like in the ancient world, uh, go look at the deadheads. You know, the people who follow the Grateful Dead around the country? That's actually how discipleship worked. So, These people identify with Christ, but Christ looks at them and says, you don't believe. They want to make him king. They want him to solve all their problems, but they don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you, and the implication is you've not come to me. But they would look him in the eye and say, no, we want you to be king. We want you to solve all of our problems. We, we have followed you around the countryside. Uh, we've watched you work a miracle, and we believe you can solve all our problems. 
you haven't come to me. And then the last verse is, and by the way, this is verse 666, which means it's literally verse 666, probably just a a random fluke, but uh, verse 666 reads, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. A pretty good verse for 666, really. And it indicates a absolute walking away from Christ. We don't really want this. Uh, we don't want talk about your body and blood. We don't want to drink that and eat that. Uh, and we certainly don't want to continue in tribulations. Uh, we're going to leave. So that's who they are. They're religious people, but they have not really come to Christ. That they want him to solve all their problems doesn't mean they've come to Christ. And they're willing to walk away from him if he doesn't give them what they want, and he can do it, and he won't. But they are not believers. And if you think about it, you can see it in this event. Did they actually care about Christ's desires? The the New King James translates verse 15 very well. The King James Version blunted it just a little. The the force that you hear in the New King James is very definitely in the original. They were going to come and by force make him king. That does not indicate that they were thinking about what he wanted. They were going to do it by force. They were going to take him and bend his arm and make him solve their problems. They were going to put him at the head of the crowd and push him into Jerusalem They had an agenda. They knew what they wanted. None of this smells at all like they were ready to bow the knee. They were willing to actually let him be the captain of the ship and steer the vessel. They wanted a king, but they drove the agenda. Our Lord Christ was not in their minds or their thoughts. Their needs were, their perceived needs, needs that are not actually the needs that they are truly suffering from, although we will have to go further in John chapter 6 to see that brought out, but on the other hand, needs that we truly could have empathized with. Uh, Political injustice, yes, that was happening. Greed, corruption, uh, inequality, half the country being slaves, all of that was happening. And they wanted Christ to fix it, and Christ wouldn't fix that. Christ had his agenda, and they didn't care about his agenda. In fact, consider, if you will, how the principal disciples experience this story. The two miracles that take place, well, 2.5, depending upon how you interpret the end of the the verse, uh, the two big miracles that happen between verse 1 and verse 21 are just hours apart. And in the first miracle, uh, Jesus says, you know, solve their problems, and he gives them a couple bread, uh, he gives them a handful of bread loaves and two fish, And they are the ones that carry that out to the crowds. And in their very hands, you have a miracle take place that they have experienced 
we just fed 5,000 men, let alone how many people are here. We did that. It happened in our hands. We watched as God multiplied things in our hands. What a power trip might that have been? Now, it shouldn't be because it's God who's doing it. But honestly, put yourself in their shoes. You are walking through a crowd of, of 5,000 men, and you are passing out more and more bread and more and more fish, and it's from your hands, and everybody is taking it from you. How, how do you feel? You feel powerful. You feel like the knight in shining armor. You feel like nothing can conquer you. And then a few hours later, you're on the Sea of Galilee, about three miles from shore, and a squall has come up, and it's totally dark. In fact, John describes the darkness in the original with very potent language. Uh, waves are crashing over your boat. The boat is being tossed to and fro, and you feel absolutely powerless just a handful of hours after you were used miraculously to fill, feed 5,000 people. And not only that, you're there because Jesus, your Lord, sent you there. Now, in the Gospel of John, John doesn't focus on that. But as I said, all four of the Gospels do talk about this event. And when you go to Matthew's account, this is what we read of how they got in the predicament they were in. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was there alone. So Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus says, guys, the next step of your life is you're going to cross the lake. Did the Lord know the storm was coming? Well, absolutely. In fact, the very point of the miracle seems to be our Lord has power over nature. Our Lord has power over all things of this world. You don't have that kind of power without also having all knowledge. So as our Lord is sending them off, he knows you're going right in the middle of the storm. And it's interesting how this event is used in Christian preaching for the last 2,000 years. There's not a theologian worth his salt who has not pictured this event and said, you know, there's a poetic picture here. There are disciples of Jesus Christ in a boat at sea. They're passing from point A to point B, and the Lord is not physically with them, and there's a storm brewing all around them, but Jesus was with them in the beginning, and he will be with them at the end. Does that sound like anybody you know? That actually is a very good picture of the church of Jesus Christ this very moment. Our Lord is with us spiritually, of course, but bodily he was with us 2,000 years ago. Bodily he will be with us at the return. We are progressing from point to point, and the history of the Church of Christ has been we are tossed in a storm. The world fights and bucks against the presence of God, and the presence of God is localized on us, 
And so the world is a storm that tosses and throws the church in every direction. The world would destroy it with a vehement fury, and yet we're not going to sink. It looks dark. It looks stormy. We look powerless, and we are, but we're not going down. The Lord was with us, the Lord will be with us, and we will reach the other shore. We are on the boat going to Capernaum. Well, that night, they were physically and truly and really on the boat going to Capernaum, and it certainly looked like they were in great danger. But John makes a contrast here that you really can't miss. Those who wanted Jesus to be that uh, political savior, he walked away from them. But what does John say Jesus did to the disciples? He came to them. So they're powerless, they're, they're fighting against the storm, they're losing. Jesus comes to his disciples, and it is the presence of the Lord that is the blessing. Jesus will say, one of the 365, be not afraid at this point. But he roots it in, not, well now the storm's over, he roots it in, It is I, be not afraid. The crowd has driven the real Jesus from them because they want to fake Jesus. The disciples are receiving the true Jesus and he is blessing them. And he tells them, don't be afraid. There is the implication there is no need to be afraid because I am here with you in the storm, in the tempest, Be not afraid. It's the same sort of thing that Jesus says as he gets ready to depart the earth. We know know the Great Commission, but listen to what is at its beginning and at its end. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the beginning. And then we go through the the, uh, commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And here is the end. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me. I am with you always. You don't Picture me always, but I'm here. I am with you always to the ends of the age. You can be my witnesses. You can be my disciples. You can bring the gospel to the ends of the earth because I'm with you. Christ says, it is I. Be not afraid. Paul's last letter is, of course, 2 Timothy. It is his swan song, if you will, to the church. In chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul tells you what his absolute hope is while he's sitting in a Roman jail cell and waiting execution. And what it is is, I know whom I have believed. I know him. I have been with him. He has been with me. 
I have experienced him. He has walked with me. I know him who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. That day is the resurrection. That day is the day of judgment. That day is the reclamation of all things. I know he can keep what I have given to him. It will not be lost to me on that day because I know him. He's been with me. That is my hope. Not that the storm ends, but he is with me. But, you know, the ironic thing about this entire passage is that Jesus Christ is already king. They can't come and make him king because he's already king. Who but the divine messianic king could feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish? Who but the divine messianic king could look at the storm, the wind, and the waves and say, you know, that's enough, stop, and it stop? Who but the divine messianic king could walk on water or help anybody else walk on water? Because in the other Gospels, Peter will walk for a few steps. Uh, Who can do that? Well, only the king. They can't make Jesus king because he already is. And he is acting like a king. He is exerting his authority like a king. He is already defeating his enemies. He is already making nature do what he wants. He is already laying up prosperity for his servants. Uh, But he's doing it his way because he's really king. There is a strange phenomenon that I have noticed in the church ever since I was converted. People will call God Lord, and they will say no to him. How do you do that? Because the term Lord means king. It means ruler. Kingship is not rooted in democracy. Kingship is rooted in absolute rule. And that's one of the reasons why God kept kingship for man. God did not institute kings. Uh, In fact, for his own people, he said, you don't need kings because I'm your king. When absolute rule is localized in God himself, then you have justice, then you have peace. Um, Do you want a theocracy? Well, if you can have a real one, yes, because if God could be directly your king, that would be wonderful. The problem with theocracies is that you get humans between you and God, and that really messes things up. But Jesus is already the king, and the reader of the Gospels can't miss that. Those who are looking for this world to be uncursed are like those liberals of the Renaissance who said, I am positive that God is immoral because he doesn't keep us from fighting wars. Think about that for a second. Who fights wars? Well, we do. Why do we fight wars? Well, we're sinful. So you want God to stop you from doing what you want, and he's immoral because he doesn't do it. You want God to be Superman. You want him to fly about the world 
and negate all the effects of the curse, the curse he himself has laid. So you want God to fight God. Uh, Who's not thinking well here? Why is it you can't count what's lacking? Why is it you can't straighten what's bent? It's because God did it. And Jesus did not come the first time to end the curse in totality. He came to lay down his life as a sacrifice for his people, to redeem them by his blood. He is going to one day do everything this crowd wants him to do. When he comes again, he will reign just like they want. But they don't really want what he's doing now, and you can't say no to the Lord. He's not the Lord if you say no. I mean, he is, but you don't see him that way. Our Lord is king. Thanks be to God that he is. Now, as I bring the sermon to a close, last time I preached on John 6, I mentioned how the liberals had used the feeding of the 5,000. They totally changed the story. Today's modern liberals tend to just say, well, the Bible is totally made up. There's no truth in it at all. Uh, That's very hard to do, considering the Bible was written at a time where the events that are in the Bible, you had people living who had seen the events. Uh, it, It would be shown to be a lie instantaneously, if that were the case. But in the 19th century, liberals acknowledged that, and they didn't tend to do that. They, they tried to give some credence to the writing, but they tried to find some naturalistic way to explain it. And so when it comes to the walking on the water and all that, what they said was, well, you know, Jesus was actually walking on the shore, and the disciples saw him, and they probably, uh, they, they probably thought he was walking on water the way it looked, but he's actually walking along the shore. And then when he comes over to the boat, where you would have to walk in the water a little bit, uh, he actually knew where the rocks were, and he was able to walk on the rocks and such. Uh, J.C. Ryle quotes an American who visited this very site during the 19th century, and uh, this is what a man by the name of Thompson, an American traveler, wrote about his experience on the Lake of Galilee. Uh, My experience in this region enabled me to sympathize with the disciples in their long night's contest with the wind. I have seen the face of the lake like a huge boiling cauldron. The wind howled down the valleys from the northeast and east with such fury that no efforts of rowers could have brought a boat to shore at any point along that coast. To understand the cause of these sudden and violent tempests, we must remember the lake lies low, 600 feet lower than the ocean. The watercourses have cut out profound ravines and wild gorges, converging to the head of the lake, and that these act like giant funnels to draw down the cold winds from the mountains. On the occasion referred to, we pitched our tents on the shore and remained for three days and nights exposed to this tremendous wind, we had to double-pin all the tent pegs and frequently were obliged to hang with our whole weight upon them to keep the quivering tabernacle from being carried up bodily into the air. 
No wonder the disciples toiled and rode hard all that night. In another place, he says, small as the lake is and placid in general as a molten mirror, I have repeatedly seen it quiver and leap and boil like a cauldron when driven by fierce winds. So we're not going to believe in miracles. We're going to believe that a man could walk on rocks that nobody else saw in the middle of a hurricane-like gale. We're going to believe that instead. Why are we going to do that? It is because we are dedicated to naturalism, and that's the only thing we can come up with. But our Lord is clearly supernatural. He clearly is king. He clearly rules over nature. He is clearly able to do all his holy will. And he comes to his disciples who are not looking for God to solve all the problems of this world, which are rightly here because of God's curse, but they are looking for him. And they find their peace in him. And again, he could be the king the crowd wants. John says the moment he gets in the boat, they are suddenly at their destination. Does that mean a miraculous arriving? Well, it kind of really sounds like that. The Gospel of Mark says that this squall, this, this horrible storm, it immediately became calm as glass. It's miraculous, but it takes less faith to believe that than it does what the liberals would supply otherwise. Thanks be to God that Jesus is the king.